This is a CJSR podcast. Volunteer powered. Listener supported. Campus and community. Radio. Podcast. Podcast. Radio. Radio, Radio and, and podcast. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't remember who my or what my name was, but he'd always call me Progi. Yeah, because I was his Ukrainian, yeah, gra- one of his green, uh, Ukrainian grandchildren, right? Mm. And so that's one thing that really sticks out for me every single time. And so it's like, oh, I can't, I can't deny a program. What a guy. I'm Caitlin Karbonik. And I'm Sophia Yang. You're listening to That's Food from CGSR. Revealing the backstory to Edmonton's food, one meal at a time. Today, we are exploring local indigenous foods in Edmonton and beyond in Treaty 6 territory. So, what's that going to look like, Eklin? So this story actually took me on a pretty wild journey. I started wanting to learn about what is indigenous food around Edmonton. Things that were or are eaten in this area. Pretty straightforward, right? What I didn't know was that I was going on a deep dive into culture, language, and food relationships that underpin traditional eating habits of Indigenous peoples here on Treaty 6. Alrighty, let's find out! The first person I talked to was Laura Mushimansky, an undergraduate student here at the University of Alberta. She is the creator and coordinator of the Indigenous Campus Community Nutrition Program. As I mentioned before, I initially was interested in what are traditional Indigenous foods, So let's hear from Laura. Most of our ancestors were nomadic, um, following, you know, the hunt, um, and then hunting or gathering and harvesting food within that area. So you think about it, you're being nomadic, and you got the sack of flour. How many people are going to carry a sack of flour around to make bannock? So bannock itself is a Gaelic um, word, which comes from... um, the land of Scotland. And so the literal translation in Scotland is the land of Bannock. A lot of the other foods that were traditional that uh, I look at is, you know, berries. So all types of berries, um, strawberries, so wild strawberries, uh, blueberries, Saskatoon berries. Um, what else we got here? Choke cherries, high brush cranberries, and then, uh, you know, different types of nuts. So hickory nuts, hazelnuts. I don't know if you ever picked hazelnuts i've i've picked them when they're green i've never picked them when they're ripe yeah like the prickles yeah they're like yeah. why did i do this and you're trying to like suck yeah. up the thistles <laughs> <laughs> yeah. absolutely and then um even there's wild rice um but the thing is there was not um many gluten in the diet because of where those plants actually derived from but yeah and then with animals right so indigenous people utilized all of um the animal that they use, especially the buffalo, you hear about that, you know, uh, they even used the stomachs, you know, for carrying things in it, the hide, the bones as tools, so various, but yeah, and so nowadays, like, you know, rabbits, rabbit stew, moose, moose meat is very popular in indigenous communities still to this day, deer, elk, uh, the smaller type, um, not rodents, but uh, animals, as well as like poultry, so wild ones, so um, pheasants. So, yeah, there's just various different types of food that, you know, are growing naturally or wild here in Canada. At this point in the conversation, Laura started talking about symbiotic relationships that edible plants have with their environments. This idea of 
plant environment symbiosis is super interesting and helped me understand some of the ways local indigenous foods have relationships with the environment and with people. Side note, as a responsible podcaster, I can't officially endorse eating or using medicinally any strange new weeds found in your garden. So before you do that, do your research, people. So plantain is, um, I met with a traditional Métis medicine lady, and so plantain you can uh, take and you can dry, and um, you can make it into a salve, you can make it into a tea, you can eat it as is, like there's so many medicinal properties to plantain itself. And the really cool thing that stuck with me when she um, showed me this is wherever you see plants growing so usually in heavy populated is where what we call weeds they grow and so wherever those are growing is they're coming for your to aid you with whatever illness you have so if you never ever noticed these weeds don't actually grow in the bush in the wild but they grow where there's heavily populated human populations and so one thing that she also mentioned to me um, is so in your yard if you notice a new type of plant that's starting to grow, pay attention to it because that plant is there to help you with whatever illness that you might have contracted. And so plantain, um, it's also called rattlesnake root, but so it helps with a lot of um, health-related illnesses, such as diabetes, um, types of flus, I'll say. But the funny thing that I got a kick out of this is that um, this plant actually came over when the colonizers came over to Canada, I'll say. I don't like the word the colonizers, but I'm gonna say that. So when the white man came over, whatever you want to call it. Um, but yeah, and so they brought that plant, but along with that plant, they brought disease. And so that symbiotic relationship between disease and the plants and, um, you know, ailing these types of illnesses. And so, um, yeah, within the River Valley, there are so many traditional plants. Um, nettle, nettle is a big one that grows um, here. Stinging nettle, wear protective clothing because it, it does sting. But oh, yeah. it has a, burned. Yeah, it has a really high protein content. The vitamins and minerals that are in it, um, you know, are fantastic like uh, and also it helps with your stomach health your skin your nails your hair there's so many benefits to it because there's so many medicinal properties in all of these plants around us but I think that we um, over kind of look it and seek to other sources that are more tangible instead of taking the time to understand and respect it right mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Laura also uses the Cree language to understand Indigenous food relationships. She gave me a handout on different Cree names for foods, so I asked her about that. You gave me a handout, um, you sent it to me, with some of the Plains Cree names for foods and food-related things, and I was wondering if we could go through a couple of them and, sure. and if you could pronounce them. Um, I don't know if you have any favorite ones. Try or my best. I have Let's a look list. At this here. I circled cucumber because I wanted to talk to you specifically about. So what I was taught, um, cucumber, the literal translation is our deceased grandmother. So think about it as uh, it's a lineage thing. So our grandmother's seeds, so from our ancestors. So where we are 
and then the lineage between you know our family going all the way back and so we're uh oh man i'm gonna botch it cook uh, you know i can read and write and do all that fun stuff but to pronounce you know it's uh it's a it's a work in progress for me uh so cookum is the grandmother part uh then me panna now so our deceased grandmother so penny um, i believe means the deceased part and then the now is for our so when you're looking at our uh, how the tree uh, how um, the Cree language is set up so um you have different types of players or characters my one tia used to say and so there's eight different ones so um i or me you he or she um and then we as in are uh, so including the listener and then we excluding the listener and then um, they or them, John's son, and I think I'm missing one. Sorry. I'm just, you know, I'm not caught up on my career. I haven't toured it this year, so I'm like, oh, I'm feels like I'm missing it. But anyways, so cucumber one um, really stuck out to me. So it's just a lineage thing um, and just like the culture itself and that kinship. So the difference between English that I found and uh, Cree is the kinship. And so what the kinship is, it's based on that relationship that we share with each other. So that unique bond between two people. And that's where that symbiotic relationships that I talk about come into play as opposed to English. So when you're saying my mother in Cree, that is this you know, a very special and intimate relationship that you share with your mom. But in English, it's more a possessive term that that's my mom, right? And that we lose that relationship part of it, that kinship part of it that is very special. We wrapped up our conversation with some of the more evocative Cree words for food. There's a book called... Um, 100 days of Cree, so Mexican food. So the little translation is fart food because it's, so meatsy win means um, food. Meatsy is to eat something that is non-living. And then the win is a nominalizer. So just like in English, you take communicate, which is a verb, and then you put communication on it and become, and so that the, t, uh, the Sean part is a nominalizer and then becomes a noun. And so um, Mexican food, was it puequezo mitziwen? So fart food, essentially Mexican food. (laughs) (laughs) Or um, another one, honey. So the literal translation is bee poop, bee puke, whatever you want to, you know, whatever floats the boat. And then amume. So it's like amume, you know, uh, when you you think you're like those terms of endearment, but here, you know, you're just being sarcastic about it. My conversation with Laura showed me how food is more than sustenance. When you're talking about food, you're also talking about history, community, memory, and the relationships that you have with yourself and others. All of these things are important for a person's health. Now, we're going to hear from my next guest, who's going to talk to us about how one Indigenous community is working to provide tasty, nutritious food to its young people while helping to build positive food relationships, or what my guest calls communities of eating. So 
I came from a generation that uh, I, I'm not that old, but um, like I was I was in elementary school in the '80s, so I I lived three blocks from my school, and I would walk home every day for lunch, and that. I lived like that until I was in high school where I had to catch a bus and go across town, but I still had lunch packed for me every day by my caring, loving mother. <laughs> and we live in a society now that's not like that. Scott Hall is the director of the Universal School Food Strategy for the school system in Masquachis, an indigenous community about an hour south of Edmonton. I valued that, uh, that time that I could just go home and watch Flintstones and hang out with my mom and, and, and eat some amazing lunch that she made for us, like hot lunch every day. She made this amazing stuff. I, I, I think that's something that we need to provide our uh, younger generations because uh, institutional food systems won't cut it and the gas station isn't going to cut it. Convenience stores and McDonald's aren't going to cut it. So our kids need to have access to that healthy, nutrient-dense food. And not just the food, but the community of eating. The Universal School Food Strategy is an initiative designed by the Alberta Coalition for Disease Prevention to address the challenges with providing healthy food environments for young people in Alberta. For Scott, this initiative connects to existing values that have existed in Masquachis for a long time. As a community in Masquachis, uh, Wokotuan is a, is a fundamental value of the community, which means good kinship and sharing with one another. So that goes back 10,000 years. So it's not a new idea. The Universal School Food Strategy is just a, a name that we identified our program with, but um, it's really an ancient kind of way of living in community, feeding the children, <laughs> taking, care of, taking care of the basic needs, right? Basic physiological needs need to be met first before we can meet higher needs in education, right? So that's that's what we do. We feed everybody breakfast, lunch, and snacks. Uh, food's available to all students and staff all day long, uh, five days a week. Awesome. Um, what was the word for kinship that you used? Could w you? Wakotuan. Mm -hmm. So that, that means uh, kinship. Um, we have four values, and <coughs> I, I, I know two of them right off the top of my head, which is Mio Pinatsuin, which is... Uh, uh, the Cree way of living, and um, uh, we'll go to one which is um, living in community with one another. Yeah, and there's a couple others that are, I can't remember right now. But <laughs> <laughs> Scott's work is underpinned by the kinship values that both he and Laura talked about. For him, that means doing his job, which is feeding 2,400 kids and staff breakfast, lunch, and snack every day in Masquachis and running special programs whose aim is to help students develop healthy relationships with food. Let's hear more. Growing our own food, agroecology we call it. We've moved away from permaculture, mm. more, more uh, um, fits better with the current curriculum in Alberta. We can offer credits in agriculture for the students or we can offer credits in environmental stewardship. So, um, and then our basic, of course, our foods program, which is um, an offshoot of the uh, Alberta foods curriculum. And we, run that on a daily basis in our kitchens with the high school students making the food. It operates uh, very much just like commercial kitchen students come in uh, in the morning, uh, they, they clock in, wash their hands, grab an apron, and um, they, they go to work making food 
uh, based on what's on the menu. So um, the students are active in, in, develop, er, in, in, in producing food in the kitchen every day. Mm -hmm. Could you explain agroecology to, to me? Sure, it's, it's basically permaculture um, without um, the holding hands and, um, <laughs> and more of the hippy-dippy kind of uh, elements of permaculture design movement. Like there's a whole movement behind, like an ideological movement behind permaculture design that we wanted to sort of distance ourselves from. Not, not that it's, you know, wrong or that we're making any value judgments there, but um, as an educational uh, institution on... Uh, in, in indigenous land, it needs to be something either fully um, indigenous and from the community, or or scientific and clearly we didn't want to incorporate other cultural elements um, that weren't from the community. So um, we're focusing on agroecology. It fits well with uh, what goes in and um, the traditional ways of knowing. So um, yeah. And what were the goals when you began? this agroecology project? Uh, <coughs> the agroecology project uh, is, is something that, that, that is an ongoing thing. So th the goals are to um, keep our f school food program uh, as low cost as possible. So, uh, and then incorporating all of those other elements and educating the palate of young people is, is also involving educating where they can, you know, uh, educating the students on where their food comes from. So um, the education piece from uh, my perspective as a teacher is so important that we have uh, students eating healthy but not just eating healthy. They know where the healthy food comes from, what needs to be in place for healthy food to arrive on their table, which involves um, yeah, getting them uh, active in the program, growing food and and so that's the goal is that the students have an awareness of the of the systems of food growing and um, and how do you increase the nutritional density on their plates uh, a few years ago the alberta chief signed off on the declaration of food sovereignty which means that they have full control over where their food comes from and what they feed their children um, and what's available in the community for feasts and such so so wild meat and and wild uh, harvest um, can be provided for the students. That's that's an area that, that, that was a natural fit for us as well. So um, yeah, some of the goals are to indigenize the menu, to educate the students on where their food comes from and how to increase the nutritional density on their plate. Um, those are the goals of the agriculture or the agroecology program. Why is indigenizing the food that your students eat and work with important? Oh, uh, well, this goes back to just colonialism. And um, uh, if you look at the food systems that we're, that we're reliant on now, they're in industrial models uh, based on a colonial system. So um, uh, capitalism, buy and sell, bottom line, profit margin, all that kind of stuff for the food industry is uh, kind of run-of-the-mill how you operate an institutional food service. Um, in, um, um, multinational food corporations dominate the industry. Uh, I could name names, but <laughs> they have lots of trucks and they cover you know, continents with, with uh, generic industrialized food processing uh, matter, and we want to avoid that whole system. For Scott, feeding the community is critical. 
but maybe not as critical as helping his students develop relationships with their food. He didn't want to name names, but large multinationals that supply our food, like Cisco or Aramark, the latter of which has a contract to supply our food here on the University of Alberta's campus, don't really help us understand where our food comes from or any of the culture that underpins that food. I don't want to badmouth these companies because they do provide a necessary service in feeding millions of people. But maybe there is something important missing in that system. And in a community like Masquachis, an indigenous community with values like Wakotoan or kinship. If you think about it that way, you might be able to see why asking for more than refrigerated truck food is important. I asked Scott to talk to me about a concept he mentioned earlier, food sovereignty. This part of the conversation was pretty hard to have, but I think it's important to understand that the food relationships that exist today in Indigenous communities are informed by past events and discrimination that First Nations people endured. Side note, Scott is talking about the idea of food sovereignty in the context of the Treaty Territories of Canada. Food sovereignty absolutely exists for other communities in the world, but in the context of Canada, a colonial country, Scott is right that food sovereignty can't apply in the same way to non-Indigenous communities. You mentioned the idea of food sovereignty a little bit back. Mm -hmm. Could you expand on that a little bit? Uh, I think the, the word sovereignty once again, I'm, I'm, I'm non-Indigenous, so I, I don't feel comfortable speaking to the depth of the word sovereignty, but I know it doesn't apply to uh, non-Indigenous communities. Um, food sovereignty is something that, that applies specifically to Indigenous communities in, in that it's um, um, a declaration of sovereignty over, over its own food system um, in reaction to, obviously, um, the historical um, um, I don't I don't like talking about this <laughs> that's totally <laughs> the fine. systematic starvation of people in Canada from the government so um, reclaiming food systems that were once stolen by the government um, so that's um, yeah to wrap up our conversation I asked Scott about his memories with his students. We, we do n numerous events, catering events, um, community events and stuff in neighboring communities. Um, um <coughs> oh, every, every time we do, do those events, we have a unique time to bond as, as coworkers. Um, they're, you know, teenagers, you know, they're students, they're my students, but we have a unique opportunity to bond as coworkers when we do these weekend events where they come in and they prepare food for a Christmas dinner for the fire hall or the or the, the, the city. Um, and uh, it's those times when we then, yeah, I find that we have the most honest conversations and that their eyes light up, that there's a potential for them to find a career pathway in the kitchen um, preparing food and, and they enjoy it and we laugh and have a good time. And it's always good. It's always challenging, but it's always really unique. 
you know, joyful. So there you have it. Food is important on an individual nutritional level, but also for relationships, culture, and community. That was pretty intense. I didn't realize such an everyday thing could have so much impact. Definitely something to think about. Today's snapshot is one in ten households in Alberta suffer from food insecurity, which is defined as the lack of enough money to buy enough healthy food. But their fruit and vegetable substitution programs have a positive impact on students' fruit and veggie intake, and then healthy foods in schools help kids achieve more. And that's it for this episode of That's Food. Today's episode was produced by me, Caitlin Carbonic, with help from Sophia Yang. Our music is by Dad Hoyer. You can find all of episodes on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and our website dadsfood.transistor.fm. You can contact us at dadsfood@cjsr.com. We are Dadsfood CJSR on Facebook and Instagram. Dadsfood is produced at CJSR in Edmonton on Treaty Six territory. Catch you next time, snack pals. But is it food? Yeah, that's food. <laughs>